When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you so much for picking this podcast. Let's face it, you have lots of options when it comes to podcasts. And yet, here you are again, and I appreciate that. Or if it's your first time, welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level show. I created this show seven years ago with the intent of being able to interview CEOs, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and other people who were doing cool things and shaking things up and making waves in business. So before we get started, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode. This episode is brought to you by Stanton Chase International, one of the leading global executive search firms serving as trusted advisors to help companies build their leadership team. I work for Stanton Chase, so check us out at stantonchase.com. All right, today I am joined by Rich Walker. He is the CEO of Quick, that's Q-U-I-K with an exclamation point, and what they do is they eliminate handwriting on paper forms. Let's face it, filling out a form It's just a process and it can bog us down. What they do is they help their customers get to their best work instead of being bogged down on that pesky paperwork. So Rich, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Tom, thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction. I think I'm going to steal your two second line about our company to talk about us in the future. That was great. (laughs) Well, well, thank you. And like I said, thank you for being here. Do me a favor. Give me a little bit of your background before quick. What, what was your background? How did you get your first CEO role? Is this your first CEO role? Tell us, tell us your business history. Yeah, you know, I like to go all the way back in time because I, I grew up very poor and I learned that being an entrepreneur is something that you can do. You can build a product and people will pay you for it. I started my first business at age 12. It was a water toy for having water fights. I totally fell in love with business at that point because I made $1,000 in one day And that enabled me to buy my car when I turned 16. So I knew at age 12, I'm going to grow up and be an entrepreneur. I went to college like most people. I studied engineering. I ended up studying business. And then I realized I need to get a job because I didn't know what I was going to do. And I went to work at Arthur Anderson in consulting, not accounting. And then I learned all about the different business processes. And I worked for Fortune 500 companies. And I got exposed to so many different things. And I loved consulting for a while. But what I didn't like was leaving the customer after we told them what to do. I wanted to be the customer. I wanted to feel like I was going to do something that changed the world. So again, I went to work for other companies. Um, I left the technology world in the year 2000. I said, okay, I'm good at tech. I was doing tech consulting, but I want to do something where I really get to work one-on-one with people and help them with their goals. So I became a financial advisor. And in becoming a financial advisor, I realized that there was a lot of inefficiency in the world one of which was filling out paperwork. 
So here I was starting my business as a financial planner, thinking I'm going to be the next Susie Orman, go on CNBC, write books, whatever, but help a lot of people. And then suddenly I'm stressed out with filling out paperwork for a living. And I thought, wow, this is dumb. I don't like handwriting forms. And so I built technology that would do it for me. And I didn't really think anything of it. But as I started turning in really clean paperwork to people, the home office, the branch office, people around me just kept saying, Rich, how'd you do that? I don't want to fill out forms either. Give me your thing. And I'm like, no, it's a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. I'm not doing that. But after about six months of hearing that, I said, well, I guess we better try to bring a product to market. So, you know, to answer your question, I had been a product manager. I had been a consultant. Then I became a financial planner. Always wanted to be CEO. So I thought the best way to do it, start my own company and grow it from there. Uh, And it's been quite a journey. We are in year 20 of our business uh, in the forms automation world. Wow. 20 20 years in business is quite an accomplishment uh, for anybody. How big is the company now? So we have uh, grown quite a bit this year. In fact, we started with about 18 full-time equivalent people and we just turned 28 and we're hiring 29 right now. So we're growing. That's that's 50% growth in the middle of a global pandemic. That's a pretty good thing. Crazy, huh? (laughs) So I know something that's near and dear to your heart as a CEO, as a business leader is creating a corporate culture. So now you're almost 30 people strong. What have you done along the way over these 20 years to create a really strong corporate culture? So I have to admit, culture has been such an important part of my life that I designed my culture well before I started this company. When I was in college, I interviewed at least 10 times a semester to find different jobs. And what I finally realized I was doing as I was looking for the company that made me happy, where I felt like I could naturally thrive and the people I related to. And one day I worked at Arthur Anderson as a temp employee for a week. And I looked around and I thought, wow, I get along with these people. I could do this. This is where I feel good. And when I joined Arthur Anderson, I learned a tremendous amount of, about company culture because that company, unlike a lot of their competitors did not grow through acquisition. They grow, grew organically and they did it with culture. So I learned a lot about the definition of culture there. So before I started my company, I realized there were four things, four cultural tenets that would make me happy, that would empower me to do my best work and make me naturally thrive. And so I I formed those four things in my mindset and in the company vision. And I guess essentially it's a lightning rod for how we hire and how we coach our team members and really how we interact with each other. So what, what are those four things? So the four things are, they're all equally important. They're not in a very specific order. Uh, Number one, we must design software that's so easy to use. It doesn't require a user guide because nobody likes following user guides. Now, are we successful at that all the time? No, of course not. But it's a mindset to always produce our software and our internal business processes and how we do our workflow to be intuitive and simple. Second, we must provide outstanding customer service because think about it. If you buy a product and you can't get service when you need it, the product's worthless. I mean, why would you use it? So we strive to always design an excellent customer experience and that's through the customer success process. That's also internal. I tell my, my team members, if you don't get excellent service from somebody inside the company, how can we expect you to give excellent service outside the company? Number three is we love what we do. We hire people to do the roles that they love to do and they want to excel in. 
And it's magical when you get somebody to do their best work and they love doing it, they do more of it and they do it more effectively. And fourth is it's really about integrity. We do what we say we're going to do. And it comes down to simple things. If I say I'm going to call you at two o'clock, I'm going to call you at two o'clock. I'm going to be accountable to it. And if my answer is I don't have the answer yet, I need more time. I'm at least letting you know that up front and being accountable to the, the goals or the objectives we've set. So with those four things, we have people that are engaged and productive uh, and enjoying their work. All right. So I want to dissect each of those four things in a quick answer here. And that is number one, you want to design software that's so easy to use. It doesn't need a user's guide. What do you have to do as a company to do that? Because most software companies design stuff that even with your user's guide, you can't figure out how to use them. No, that's so true. You have to think like a user. You have to think about, I want the software to work for me. I don't want to work for the software. So you think in terms of how do you design things that are just plain intuitive. I mean, it even comes down to labels. I've been going back and forth this morning with my product manager on a sim- single label that's on our homepage of our product to help the user intuit what is the expectation of this feature. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand how a user is going to perceive the product, how they're going to interpret the product, and therefore naturally drive the behavior that we expect through the product. Uh, you know, the corollary to this too is to try to be hyper-focused on doing one thing really, really well. We're not building a product that does a hundred things. We're doing a product that automates forms with some nuance to it, but we try to keep things really focused and simple. All right. So let's take a look at number two, and that is we provide outstanding customer service. Everybody says they provide outstanding customer service, but like yesterday I was flying on an airline and the agent at the gate, I came up late. I was trying to go standby because I finished my, my speech at a conference early and I wanted to catch the early flight. And I said, hey, can you put me on standby? And she goes, oh, we can't do that. You're too late to get on the standby list. Well, I knew that wasn't true because I fly standby all the time. So I went to the Admiral's Club and I went in and I said to the lady, oh, you think I get on list? She goes, oh yeah, pop, pop, up, two type ins. And she did it. The gate agent could have done it as well, but the gate agent didn't want to give customer service. Now, if you were to talk to this airline, they would probably say, we strive about customer service. Two different employees, two different actions. So what do you do to make it real? You know, you're so right. And it is one of the hardest things to accomplish. Uh, thankfully, we're not in retail. We are a business to business, which helps a lot because there's a certain level of expectation of professionalism. However, that being said, number one, it's about empl- empowering our team members, our employees to be accountable to the customer. One of the easiest things to do is to identify with the customer. I learned this from my mom because she ran customer service at an IBM subsidiary. And she said, if somebody calls in, who's really irate and very upset, the first thing she would say to them is, oh my gosh, if I was in your position, I'd be so upset too. And it's to have empathy and identify with the person. Second, it's to deliver results. So if somebody's asking for something, we don't shirk our duties. We don't tell them no or ignore them or not reply to them. We reply as fast as we can. We are transparent and upfront with them. And we were also willing to say no. And customers respect that. I think people like to make decisions based on fact, not promise. So when you say to them, our product cannot do it, or we don't have that ability now, we will strive to do it in the future. Let's listen to you and understand it. It, it breaks down those those barriers that people have in terms of uh, being upset or having the wrong expectation. And look, I I mean, we study this too. I'm a big fan of the NPS store score, the net promoter score and our score 
over lifetime that we've been doing this is over 70, which is exceptionally high for software or any company. Uh, and we're always evaluating, are we doing right by our customers? Number three was we love what we do and we hire people into roles that they want to do and that they love to do. But, but how do you know when you're hiring somebody, if this is really what they want to do or they just need a job? How do you know if they're really going to love it? Yeah, that's a good question. I look at hiring for culture first. And, and really the first question I ask people is what attracted you to our ad? I mean, why did you even want to be here? What did you care about? Um, I think our ad actually is very unique too, because it's a, it's, it's a marketing tool. Effectively, we are filtering people out of the process and we are, we're displaying to them some of our key behaviors or cultural aspects. Um, but you know, you're right. We've had, we've had bad, bad hires before. We've had people that didn't make it. And it's kind of funny because I tell people in the interview process, the number one way to lose this job is to not do it. I know that sounds obvious, but when people don't show up to work and they don't perform, they're just not going to thrive here. So, you know, essentially I think it comes down to having very clear job descriptions that are not meant to be pigeonholes. And I'm, I'm very open about this with people. The job description is what we think we need, but when we find somebody, we look to their skills, their ambition and their aptitude, and we cater the job description to that. And if that creates a gap, we'll fill that gap in a different way. I have no expectation that somebody is perfect, but when they're passionate and excited about doing the work, I can work with that person far more effectively. And that's a perfect transition into number four, which is we do what we say we're going to do. So, I mean, obviously, you know, that's, that's key to the success in your company from the number three, but isn't it hard to always say what you're going to do? There's so many moving parts in business. No, it is true. It's true. And I'm not saying that we're perfect at it, but I'd say internally, there's no penalties. We're not, we're not a tyrannical organization as a leader. I'm a servant leader. And I look to people and say, you know what? I make mistakes and I can admit it. And I'm not angry at somebody because they made a mistake. It's a learning opportunity. Um, So they don't get punished for doing something wrong, but at the same time, they understand the impact they're having. So for example, we're automating forms. People live and die by their forms being correct, being available. And so we're, we acknowledge that pain that they feel, the risk that they're taking working with us. Um, and we just do our best to be on point with people. I mean, you just do what you can. So you just use the term that you're a servant leader. We've, we've heard that probably for the last two or three decades as, as a term. What does that really mean? It means a lot of things. I think most importantly, it means uh, I'm willing to do what it takes to empower my team to be the, the team member they're supposed to be to do their best work, to learn and grow, uh, to not dictate. I collaborate a lot with my team and I have a lot of great ideas personally, because I think really hard about a lot of stuff, but I'll come to the table and say, here are my ideas. What are your ideas? Let's figure out the best idea. Maybe another way to say it is I tell people, check your ego at the door. I don't have any ego about this stuff. I don't care about who's right or wrong or blame or anything like that. I care about us working together, enjoying our work and empowering each other to do our best work. So servant means I'm enabling others to do their work and they're enabling me to do my work. All right, I've got more questions for you around this whole thing of culture. But first, I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure you're going to sound amazing. 
Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing people who are making waves in business like Rich Walker. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So Rich, we've been through a lot the last 18 months. Some people may have noticed there was a global pandemic. Companies got hit hard. What is it that you did to maintain that company culture and protect it during the times of COVID? You know, this is a good question, Tom, because it was frightening for all of us, I think, entering the pandemic. I remember March 13th, I went home and stayed home ever since. And when I think around May, I went back to the office and I started asking my team, do you guys want to come back to the office? The answer was a resounding no. Well, for those first couple of months, realizing that we're probably going to close our office, which we did, uh, I kept saying, what are we going to do about protecting company culture? How are we going to make sure that we keep this thing going that's so good in the office? Uh, And I was concerned. And in fact, I admitted to my COO, we might have to accept that our company culture gets watered down a little bit. We're going to hire people who never had this one-on-one FaceTime and interaction with us. So there's a couple of things that happened. One, we invested in technology. We bought devices called Facebook Portal. They're large screen devices that allow us to have video conferencing in real time uh, with artificial intelligence. I'm not trying to make an ad for these guys, but it's incredible because it bridges the gap of 80 to 90% of being in person. So that has been incredible for us. We adopted Zoom. Everybody went to video. So all these tools helped us have FaceTime with each other. But second, I reinforced um, our vision and our mission and I reinforced the cultural themes in our company with everybody. We made sure we went to at least weekly meetings with everybody, daily meetings with engineering, some other daily meetings and, and weekly meetings with products. So we have a lot more meetings, frankly. That's a big part of it. We try to keep them short and concise and focused. Uh, but the thing that's happened is because people are independent and they're enabled to do their best work, they've actually embodied the culture more. I'm hearing my team members say things about our culture just in passing or to other people that makes me really happy. I didn't hear those things before in the office. It was, I felt like I was the only cheerleader of our culture at times. And now I've got way more people on the team talking about it. The result is I think the culture is working and it's self-fulfilling. We're empowering people to do their best work. They love what they do. They're creating great solutions. They're doing what they say they're going to do. Therefore we have the highest engagement and highest levels of productivity we've ever had And as we hire people, we're finding those people attracted to this are also engaging in the same way. So you mentioned that you're empowering people to do their to do their best work. So give me some more examples of how are people being empowered within Quick. So another thing we've done recently is we've started uh, reassessing job descriptions and asking people, what is it you love to do and what is it you hate to do? And write down all the things that you actually do and don't write your name next to them write down a role of the party or person that would do them. So for example, we just realized our engineering team leader really wants to be a leader. I mean, I didn't even realize he went out and got his uh, MBA. So he really wants to focus on the people aspect of it and not so much on the engineering. He's going to be an engineer because he loves that stuff, but he really wants to be a leader. Well, having that conversation and understanding that's what he wants. Now we are refocusing how he works I'm mentoring and coaching him more on leadership. We have 
giving out, we're giving out a uh, job description for everybody to understand his role. We're doing this with lots of people, by the way, it's not just him. So that way people can identify, okay, that person is the leader. He's going to mentor me. He's going to coach me. He's going to help me with my career development and my expertise and skills. And so we've been doing that across the board. We, we took somebody who's been with our company for 10 years and we promoted him to product manager, which was an amazing step. And now we're sending him off for certification. And I'll tell you one other thing we're doing. We came up with a uh, certification incentive program. And there's a couple of rules. You have to be with our company for 18 months. You have to be in your job for 18 months. But if it's something you want to improve your career, go get a certification that's well recognized. We will pay for it and we will compensate you higher once you've demonstrated the value it brings. So I love that that whole thing about in you know invest in your in your people. In fact, uh, one or two episodes ago, I interviewed a guy named Bob Pike, and what he talked about was there was a difference between you know an investment and a cost, or an investment and an expense, and that when you invest in your people, you bring back tenfold tenfold more. You also had a lot of investment in technology because of everything that you did to try and preserve that that culture. Let's go talk a little more about the tech side because some companies are having success and some companies aren't feeling like their culture has been protected and maintained. Uh, and it might be because of the types of technology they use or it might be because of the people. What, how do you think technology has helped you maintain that culture? So I want to make a point before I dive into the tech, which is I learned this at Arthur Anderson. Um, you manage resources and you lead people. You don't try to manage people. So when I look at the world of how do I lead people, I look at what tools do they need to make them more effective in their role. A couple of years ago, we got onto Slack. We have really embraced Slack. In fact, we've set up an entire Slack partner channel just for customers and partners to converse with us. Uh, we play games with Slack. So we do a lot of things to try to drive behavior of our team. We just added the birthday bot so we know when people's birthdays are. Um, so that's one of the key cornerstones of our company and how we communicate. Email, we're trying to push down further on the totem pole of using. We want emails to be customer focused and not internal focused. We have Slack and we have uh, other tools like wikis. Uh, we're a big fan of the Atlassian suite. Atlassian is a company that builds software really for software developers. And so we manage our software development process in Jira and we do our product design process in Confluence and all sorts of documentation in Confluence. And then I mentioned we've got, we adopted Zoom and we've got these portal devices, which unfortunately only work in America. I can't send them to my team in Argentina, um, but nonetheless, everybody on Zoom can use these portal devices and it creates a much more realistic effect. Um, yeah, I mean, those are the core technology things that we embrace and it's working really well for us. So what advice do you have for somebody who's listening to this who's struggling with culture, either creating it or protecting and maintaining it? You know, number one, you've got to be really clear as to what your culture is. Every company has a culture, whether they know it or not. Some are really well-defined. I look at companies like Oracle. And Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, he's a big fan of The Art of War by Sun Tzu. He, he has houses that are designed after samurai warriors and Japanese aesthetic. He really believes in that kind of culture. Well, that's a great culture to, to look at because it's really well-defined. And the people who thrive there are ones who are highly competitive, maybe even cutthroat if you want. If you're not that kind of person, you may not thrive there. So the companies that struggle, I think, are the ones who have not really understood their own culture. They don't know what that is. Second, 
if you're a smaller company like mine, if you're driven by a founder CEO, like I am, I think the company culture is you, me, in, in other words. And that's why I said I had to find these four things for myself first. And I felt if this works for me, I will attract people who are more like me, who want the same things. And that'll be easier for me to work with. Uh, maybe a funny thing to think of is my brother asked me once, Hey, if you met yourself on the street, would you be friends? I'm like, yeah, we'd be best friends. He's like, Oh, we'd be mortal enemies. So I, and just to bring it back, I do think that having a really good understanding of what your culture is and what defines that for you is the first step in order to protect it and promote it. So as the world goes to more companies, either starting with a remote workforce or taking their brick and mortar, you know, office and letting people go remote, what other advice do you have for those CEOs is if they're going to create a culture like you have, what other, what other, what other tips are there? So I'll share one other, uh, we outsource, so to speak, our engineering to a firm in Argentina. We've been partnered with them for 11 years now. And the first thing I did was try to instill culture, my company culture with my team. So I told the owner of that company, I said, look, I'm not looking to outsource. I'm looking to partner. I'm looking to have a company that is going to be a true extension of my team. Therefore, I want these team members to only work for me, no other projects, no other companies. And two, my stated goal to him and everybody on the team is, I want this team to be the coveted team of that entire company. I want everybody at that company to want to work for us because we are the best team culture. We have the best documentation to make the job easier. We have the most fun, whatever it is that you know, we put together. So I think it's really important as you scale and you look to remote that you have these clear objectives with the team who's remote. And we are hiring more people who are remote. So we're doing the same thing. We're like, look, you've got to be engaged with us. You have to have these kind of conversations and you have to have this expectation. We're not looking for somebody to live in a closet, do a job in a black box and spit out output. We're looking for somebody who wants to be part of our team and who wants to engage and socialize. And Tom, there's one other thing I'll, I'll point out. I don't, I don't read a lot of other companies, employee handbooks, but I don't think very many of them have a section in there called socializing in a positive way. We do. We encourage socializing in our company. I want people to learn from each other. We have a wealth of experience and expertise outside our business. Uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, team members ran a winery, has, knows how to produce wine. Another one's practically a professional bowler. I mean, very diverse backgrounds and interests. And it's fun to get to know these people and learn from them and you know, do different things. So it's interesting that you bring that up because obviously that's one of the things that I teach is the importance of human connection and what it really means either outside, obviously, if you're doing sales and stuff like that, people forget that you also need to have that network, for lack of a better term, inside your company. And Gallup did a, a survey, gosh, I think 25 years ago, where they and they recently have redone the survey and got the same results. They found when people have a best friend at work was the term that they used, they're more likely to stay longer with the company and contribute more as opposed to if they don't have any socialization inside the company. So one of the best things a company can do is encourage people to get to know each other and have friendships, real live best friendships inside the company because they'll stay longer. And we all know recruiting and replacing, you know, especially in today, what they call the great resignation. So many people are changing jobs. That's a huge problem for companies. But second of all, they're more productive if they have friends at work. They're, they're held more accountable to getting the job done uh, and they feel more of a sense of kinship to the whole company. So I think that's amazing that that's actually in your employee uh, orientation piece or handbook or whatever. Yeah. And every employee that onboards, I 
personally do the onboarding because it's one of my passions. And I make that point very clear that you got to ask people questions. In fact, do virtual lunches if that's what it takes. You know, our team that's in Los Angeles, they will actually go meet up from time to time in person and keep that on, you know, in person socializing. My team here in Austin, we're growing and we're going to start doing more of that too. You can't do that with Argentina. So it's really about engaging in other ways. And you should see how many uh, animated gifts there are to wish one of the guys happy birthday this morning. It's quite funny. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, as we wrap this up, Rich, is there any other advice about culture or anything else that you wish that other CEOs knew? Um, I wish that people understood that it's what drives the outcome of your business. We did some surveys over time with third parties that went out to our customers and our prospects and said, what do you perceive about quick, the team, whatever. And they asked them these series of questions. And the amazing thing is the customers answered with our company culture. They would say things like, Oh, we love working with them. They're so much fun. They love what they do. Or it's so easy to work with them because they do what they say. Or their software is so great. I mean, it just does what it's supposed to do. There's there's no mystery to it. We kept hearing that echoed back to us. And that is our company culture. And by the way, that's the underpinnings of your brand. And so our brand is really about our culture. And I think if more leaders understood that and took a hard focus on it, they would improve their hiring, their retention, their attraction of customers, and influence all the outcomes in their business. At least that's what I'm experiencing. Rich Walker, CEO of Quick, Q-U-I-K, exclamation point. Thank you so much for being a guest here on Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you. And, th- and, and thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every single episode. If it wasn't for the audience, why? Why would I do this show? So that's why I want you to make sure that you tell some friends about the show. The number one way people say they find this podcast is their mom, their brother, their boss, their coworker. Somebody told them, and I loved this line, this podcast sucks less than other podcasts. Uh, So for whatever it is, make sure that you're telling a friend, do me that favor. Go leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast love. But more importantly, Tune in every Tuesday and Thursday where we will talk to more people like Rich who are making waves in business. And in the meantime, go out there, flex your business muscles, make sure that your career ladder is against the right wall because you don't want to climb a career ladder to find out it was in the wrong place. And then finally, while you're out there doing all this, have some fun along the way. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.